Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain unlimited access to members-only episodes. And there will be more prizes coming soon. I'm looking into this little crystal ball that I keep beside my desk, and in the near future, I can see words for granted mugs. Don't those sound fun? I think they do, and they're coming soon. But prizes aside, I think the coolest thing you get to walk away with is the satisfaction of knowing that you are directly helping to sustain the output of this show. Based on the current listenership, if everyone contributed just a dollar a month, that would give me enough support to just focus on producing the podcast. And that would be awesome. The latest Patreon episode looks at a crucial linguistic component of Sophocles' Oedipus the King that gets totally lost in translation. If you've ever read the play, it'll give you a fresh new insight into the text that you probably didn't have before. If you're interested, go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted to find out more or wordsforgranted.com, and you can link from there. Thanks to Lisa for her recent contribution. One more thing before we begin. I'd like to apologize for the delay in the release of this episode and thank everyone for their patience. It's been about three weeks since I released the last one, so the fact that any of you care enough about this show to come back and listen after a brief lull really means a lot to me. Hopefully, the quality of this episode will be so awesome that the wait was worth it. This episode is part two in our two-part mini-series on tragedy and comedy. I'll be referencing some of the things we talked about in last week's tragedy episode, but if you missed it, don't worry. It's not like it's a prerequisite for this one. All you need to know is that tragedy and comedy were the two main forms of theater performed in ancient Greece, and that's why we are covering them together. Since you are the type of person who listens to an educational podcast about linguistics, history, and literature, you probably already knew that, but I always like to make sure that everyone's on the same page, just in case. So, let's talk about comedy. The modern sense of comedy needs no introduction. Comedy is any form of entertainment that's designed to make us laugh. It can describe TV, film, stand-up, improv, podcasts, internet memes, whatever. The medium itself doesn't matter. Comedy can be divided into a variety of subgenres based on things such as the method of delivery or the source of humor, but in the grand scheme of things, basically, as long as a creative work is meant to be funny, that work can be classified as a comedy. End of story. But that hasn't always been the case. Comedy comes from the Greek word komodia, and it was originally strictly used to describe a particular genre of dramatic play that was performed in ancient Greece. Before we look at how the genre, and by extension, the very definition of comedy has changed over time, I want to look at 
how the genre began in the first place. As it turns out, its origins are preserved in the word's etymology. So let's use this as an entry point into our story. It's widely believed by scholars that the theatrical genre that the ancient Greeks would eventually define as comedy evolved out of something called the phallica. In English, the phallica translates as the penis parade. It's going to be hard for me to take myself seriously if I say the penis parade a bunch of times, so let's call it the phallic procession instead. So, the phallic processions were a common part of a rural Greek religious festival that was annually held in honor of Dionysus, the god of wine, fertility, ritual madness, and theater. These raucous, drunken processions would lead to a cult center that featured a large, fetishized phallus to which a sacrifice was then offered. Participants in the phallica cathartically shouted and swore, sang and danced, and basically the phallica was like Mardi Gras on a heavy dose of Viagra. The groups of people who marched in the phallic processions and partook in this all-out debauchery were known as the Comos, which translates into English as Band of Revelers, or simply Revelry. When you combine Comos with Oide, the Greek word for song, you get komodia, or comedy. You may recall from the last episode that the word oide also produced the E-D-Y ending in tragedy, so this means that comedy and tragedy are etymological half-siblings. Although the Greek philosopher Aristotle wholly supports the phallic origins of the genre of comedy, he actually refutes the revel song etymology and offers his own theory. He suggests that the como in komodia derives from kome, the Dorian word for village. Dorian is a particular dialect of ancient Greek. He more specifically links the origins of the word komodia to the village of Megara, whose inhabitants wandered from village to village during the Dionysian festivals. If this etymology is correct, then the original meaning of comedy was not revel song, but village song. We may never know for sure if the revel theory or village theory is correct, but since both etymologies are culturally rooted in the same phallic processions of the rural Greek countrysides during the Dionysian festivals, it doesn't really matter. They both tell the same story, but from a slightly different angle. For what it's worth, I should clarify that the more generally accepted etymology since Aristotle's time is in fact revel song. So, Make of that what you will. The evolution of the rude, drunken songs of the Komos into the genre of Greek dramatic comedy is a poorly documented process because, at first, comedy wasn't regarded as a legitimate literary genre. I mean, think about it. Drunk dudes running around screaming about penises doesn't exactly sound like the start of a great, timeless art form. Or does it? That may be the most profound question I've asked on this podcast so far. Regardless, by the 5th century BCE, these largely improvised revel songs, or village songs if you prefer the Aristotelian etymology, had made their way from the countrysides of small Greek villages to the main urban center of Athens. Athens, like most city-states and villages in the ancient Greek world, had its own version of the Dionysian festival. But... 
The Athenian Dionysia was special. At the heart of the Athenian Dionysia was the yearly drama competition. Theatrical performances were a big deal in Athens, featuring masks, music, and elaborate stage designs. People traveled from all over Greece to take part in the Athenian Dionysia. We talked about this last week in the episode on tragedy. Well, after its absorption into the urban Athenian festival, Komodai, that's the plural of komodia, had developed more sophisticated characteristics, such as characters and plot, that would eventually lead to the first incarnation of a genre that the Greeks would properly call comedy. Now that we've covered the word's etymology, we're going to look at the evolution of the genre of comedy itself. You may be thinking that this is a task better suited for the literary historian than the historical linguist, which is the primary role I play on this show, and on one hand, you're right. It is. But on the other, comedy is not just an everyday word. It's a word directly linked to an art form, a style. It follows that the semantic shifts in the word comedy reflect artistic shifts in the genre of comedy itself. So, for the rest of this episode, we'll be exploring the evolution of the genre of comedy. The first historical period of Greek comedies is called, get ready for it, old comedy. Brilliant, right? Old comedies took the unrestrained, free-for-all attitude of the Dionysian revelers and turned it towards objects of popular ridicule, usually politicians or other public figures. They were basically satire plays filled with lampooning and lewd, grotesque, and often scatological humor. With its blend of toilet jokes and contemporary social critique, The TV show South Park is probably the closest thing to old comedy that our modern pop culture has produced. Now, let's take a look at a definition of comedy from the ancient world itself. We can find one in Aristotle's Poetics. Written in the 4th century BCE, the Poetics is the Western world's first treatise on literary theory. According to Aristotle in Poetics, comedy is, quote, an imitation of characters of a lower type. Not, however, in the full sense of the word bad, the ludicrous being merely a subdivision of the ugly. It consists of some defect or ugliness which is not painful or destructive. To take an obvious example, the comic mask is ugly and distorted, but does not imply pain. End quote. Now, this definition is striking for two reasons. The first one is obvious. This is not even close to how we define comedy today. I mean, sure, the ludicrous can be comedic, and if we're mean-spirited, so can ugliness and defects, but nowhere in this definition does Aristotle explicitly indicate that comedy is supposed to be funny or amusing. The second reason is that this definition doesn't exactly seem to reflect what I've just described. That's because, A, Aristotle's life took place about a century after the period of old comedy, by which time the conventions of the genre had begun to change, and b. Aristotle's language is weighted down by culturally relative jargon that is implicitly contrasting the conventions of comedy with the older and more firmly established conventions of tragedy. 
With our lenses properly adjusted to these two points, let's try to decode what Aristotle is saying. When Aristotle says that comedy is about characters of a lower type, he's not talking about morally bankrupt, psychopathic murderers. What he's saying is that comedic characters are less than noble in both their social status and general disposition. They're ordinary people like you and me, but sillier, more ridiculous. If any of you out there listening happen to be a king or queen, you can excuse yourself from this generalization. I apologize. Given the rural and vulgar phallic processions out of which dramatic comedy evolved, the genre's focus on the lower classes isn't all that surprising. In contrast to this, tragic characters, that is, the central characters in tragedy plays, comprise figures such as kings, queens, and other state officials, or, as Aristotle puts it, quote-unquote, characters of an elevated type. This class distinction between comic and tragic characters is one of the main dichotomies distinguishing the two genres of ancient Greek drama. As we'll see, this dichotomy will continue to distinguish comedy and tragedy all the way through the Victorian era. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In the realm of ancient Greek comedy... This class distinction is perhaps most apparent during the New Comedy period, which reached its height shortly after Aristotle's lifetime. By the 320s BCE, Greek comedians had begun to move away from the lewd political satire of previous generations and instead developed a style that sought to represent the everyday lives of ordinary people in a light-hearted, agreeable way. Often, the plots of New Comedy plays were centered on love. The lewd political satire of old comedy had become a memory of the past. I should note that at this point in history, the word comedian simply referred to someone who wrote comedy plays, not someone who writes or tells jokes. New comedy plays conventionally ended with an ordinary person's rise of fortune. Tragedy plays, by contrast, conventionally ended with an extraordinary person's decline of fortune, often including their death. If you take class distinction out of the equation and strip these two different endings down to their most basic characteristic, comedies have happy endings and tragedies have sad endings. When the Latin-speaking Romans absorbed Greek drama into their own culture, they took this happy-sad dichotomy as the primary distinction between comedy and tragedy. This fundamental dichotomy passed into the Middle Ages where it was inherited by Dante Alighieri, a 14th century Italian poet whose magnum opus is entitled The Divine Comedy, a very misleading title if you don't know the history of the word comedy. The Divine Comedy tells the story of Dante's daunting odyssey through the afterlife, and it sure as hell, pun intended, doesn't contain a shred of comedy, at least not in the modern sense of the word. By the end of the three-part poem, after working his way through hell and purgatory, Dante finally reaches heaven, which of course is a happy ending. Therefore, according to the conventional literary genres of the time, the poem fit more easily into the mold of comedy than that of tragedy. Actually, the original title of the Divine Comedy was simply Commedia, which is the Italian word for comedy. Furthermore, the Divine Comedy was composed in the lowbrow dialect of vulgar Italian 
during a time when most highbrow Western European literature was being composed in Latin. Considering the class distinction between comedy and tragedy that we just discussed a few minutes ago, this further contributed to Dante's categorization of his work as a comedy because the Italian language was the language of ordinary people at the time. I'm jumping ahead here, but when the word comedy first entered English during the late 14th century via French, which had borrowed the word from Italian, its earliest usage refers simply to a narrative poem. This, of course, was due to the title of Dante's influential poem. Here's the irony of this. Dante's medieval usage of the word comedy, or more accurately, its Italian cognate, commedia, is about a thousand years closer to our present historical moment than the Greek word commodia. Yet, it's even further removed from our modern English sense of the word comedy. Thus far, it seems like the most modern-sounding sense of comedy was the commodia during the old comedy period. I don't know about you, but good poop jokes about bad politicians are probably as funny to us today as they were 2,500 years ago to the old comedian Aristophanes. So, now that we've covered the Greek conceptions of comedy, and by way of digression, the divine comedy, where do we go from here? Well, we can't possibly look at all of the historical developments of comedy between then and now because we'd be here all day and it's not really within the scope of this podcast, or for that matter, my expertise. But as a general analysis, we can say that the spread of commodia to new cultures, whether direct or indirect, resulted in new interpretations of the genre based on the times and values of the recipient cultures. These values might be moral, aesthetic, religious, and so on. Depending on what a particular culture wants to artistically express, certain aspects of comedy will be emphasized and others will be de-emphasized or discarded altogether. For example, when Aristotle's poetics was translated into Arabic during the Middle Ages, Arab scholars identified and conflated comedy with hija, a genre of Arabic poetry known for harsh satirical reprehension. By contrast, when the English theater reopened in 1710 after an 18-year ban, restoration comedy, as it was called, relished in raucous sexual explicitness in response to puritanical repression. Now, these are just two arbitrary examples, but they effectively demonstrate the adaptability of comedy to the culture and time period that wield it. You might expect me at this point to spend a bit of time with Shakespearean comedy because, well, it's Shakespeare. But in truth, Shakespearean comedy doesn't push our story forward very much. Shakespearean comedy and Elizabethan comedy at large is fundamentally characterized by most of the tropes already discussed. Happy endings, plots about ordinary people, a light-hearted tone, and elements of the ludicrous and farcical. Of course, there are some things unique to Shakespeare's comedies, such as the tremendous usage of puns, mistaken gender identities, and the misconceptions of lovers, to name a few, but none of these push us closer to the modern definition of comedy. 
For this, we're going to turn in a slightly unexpected direction toward the Punch and Judy puppet shows of Victorian England. Now, I'm not making the wild claim that Punch and Judy shows single-handedly changed comedy, but we can use them as a way of understanding how the fundamental conception of comedy was beginning to change at this time. But first, for my non-British listeners, let me briefly explain the premise of Punch and Judy. Punch and Judy is a puppet show featuring Mr. Punch, his wife Judy, and their baby. Typically, the baby is fussy, Mr. Punch throws the baby out the window, Judy retaliates by whacking Mr. Punch with a club, and then Mr. Punch throws her out the window as well. Mr. Punch has to deal with a cast of characters including a policeman, a crocodile, and sometimes even the devil himself, but ultimately, he just whacks them and throws them all out the window. Basically, it's like a violent Victorian version of a slapstick Saturday morning cartoon, except it wasn't made for children, but adults. Over time, the target audience did in fact shift to children, but that's besides the point. The reason why this popular traditional puppet show is important to the history of comedy is because it breaks the genre of comedy's poetic tradition. Shakespearean comedy, the divine comedy, old Greek comedy, new Greek comedy, and basically all forms of comedy up to this point were poetic by nature. By poetic, what I mean is that they were written in a language that was deliberately composed in accordance with aesthetics such as metaphor, meter, and so on. If we follow this line of thinking beyond works of comedy and apply it to the actual writers of comedy, then all comedians up to this point were also poets. However, the puppeteers of Punch and Judy shows were not poets. They were entertainers. Even if they planned their material beforehand and wrote it down, Punch and Judy puppeteers weren't composing it as literature or poetry. We don't study the written texts of Punch and Judy plays in Brit Lit 2 classes. Now, don't take this the wrong way. The distinction between literature and entertainment isn't black and white. Literature can be entertaining, and entertainment can be literary. But what makes a Punch and Judy show entertaining is distinctly unliterary, and this is the revolutionary part. Slapstick, in and of itself, was not new. Performance of Shakespearean plays such as Comedy of Errors and As You Like It, among many others, all contained elements of slapstick. But the difference is that Shakespearean slapstick was an extension of a textual source. Historically, we would not have classified slapstick itself as comedy. It would have been classified as one aspect of the genre of dramatic comedy. Did you catch that? It's a seemingly subtle point, but it's crucial. Up until this point, slapstick itself would not have been considered comedy, but rather one aspect of dramatic comedy we can substitute humor for slapstick into this statement, and the same is true. The sense of being amusing would not be recorded as a definition of comedy until the late 19th century, so this conceptual shift did not change overnight. But we can see in the Punch and Judy shows that humor in and of itself is beginning to be associated purely with comedy. 
This ultimately is the beginning of our modern sense of comedy. I think we can bring the episode to a close here. Comedy, of course, will continue to evolve from the Victorian era through today, but like I said at the start of this episode, the modern sense of comedy needs no introduction. With the invention of radio, television, cinema, and the internet in the 20th century, new mediums for humor emerged, and this humorous style, regardless of medium or thematic content, became known as comedy. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this episode, it's that modern comedic entities ranging from Charlie Chaplin to Monty Python to The Johnny Carson Show to Seinfeld to Comedy Bang Bang all owe their existence to an ancient Greek penis parade. All right, that's it for today's show. I hope you loved it. If you did, then I humbly ask you to leave a positive review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews put the show into the hands, or the ears, of more listeners. And as always, I'm trying to spread the good news of this show. You can follow me at Twitter, at Words for Granted, and I'm on Facebook as Words for Granted. As a coda to this episode, I want to mention that I'm going to go back and add a few more things into last week's episode on tragedy. I had to rush to release it by my stupid self-imposed deadline, and I feel like the overall quality of the show suffered a little bit. I didn't get to flesh it out as much as I would have liked. So if you check back in at the end of the week, there should be a revised version of the show available to you. If you're listening to this episode after the month of May 2017, completely disregard this message and have a good day. All right, I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted. <laughs>